So last week I was preaching on holy ground, or rather higher ground. It was a, it was a call to be marked for a generation. The Lord's been uh, speaking to me about this for quite some time. I feel like the Lord was not quite done with what he had to say last week. And uh, I know that, you know, you don't necessarily know like where, where some of this stuff is coming from. But I'm just saying the last couple of weeks I, I've been on a Zoom meeting with, from, uh, with, with people from the underground church. In, uh, in some pretty rough spots on planet Earth. And the things that you're hearing from them, the things that they are doing, the things that they have to walk through, like you're, you're like undone. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like completely undone. You know? and, and you hear their faith. You hear the sanctification process of what they're going through. And I'm not like Mr. Doomsday. I, I'm really not. Um, I, I'm not Mr. Doomsday, but I have for a while, I would guess really since, since COVID has hit, just really feel compelled as an individual and compelled as a pastor to teach in this vein that the Lord has, is, is really, really, and always has, is really calling his church to a higher place. Now, to go to a higher place is, is not necessarily comfortable. It's not. I mean, that's why man has always built towns and cities in a valley. That's why man has always built towns and cities and civilization near rivers, Right? Now, being on a mountain and living on a mountain and climbing a mountain and doing all that, that representation of higher ground is not an easy thing. But I just feel like almost, you know, I'm not one of these guys that like says, you know, I, I, I have a prophetic message from the Lord in my alphabet soup types, you know, like, you know, like some of those people, like everything, every way the wind blows is like a prophetic sign. I'm actually not like that very much at all. But I know when I hear the Lord, and I'm telling you, I've, I've heard the Lord that he's really calling us to really position ourselves, really renew our minds, to come into a place that says, you know what, really, my heart's desire is to seek his face. My heart's desire is really to be molded into the image of Jesus. And so if you're new here, or even if you're old here, there's been a lot of teaching into that. And I remember I used to scoff when I was a kid or a teenager when I heard a pastor or a leader teach on the same thing. And I remember reading an article once. I forget who it was. And there was any other. My flock, my church body is getting upset because I keep teaching pretty much the same sermon every week. They're like, how can we not change in the, the sermon? And he says, the reason why I'm not changing the sermon is because I haven't seen people actually receive it and do something about it. So I'm going to keep doing it because the Lord has spoken. I'm going to keep doing it until I start to see that there is something that's changing. Right? We, we, we do a sermon. We move on to the next class. We move on to the next thing. I'm telling you, I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know exactly what's going on. I am telling you that in this church body, the Lord is saying, I am calling you higher. And I can't let go of it. It's a burden upon my spirit, man. And I'm believing that a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, we're going to be like, oh, this is why. I don't know why, though. I haven't gotten that vision entirely. I see in part, but I don't know in part. So this is really just a continuation and some kind of filling some of the pieces in from, from last week. So let's open up to Romans 12. Paul speaking here. 
I beseech you. I beseech you. I mean, that's, that's like a, an old kind of word, an old kind of phrase. I beseech you. This is like very Shakespearean. You'll pray, do tell. I beseech you. It's this, it's this yearn. Like, I am desperately asking you. I'm coming before you as your brother in the Lord, Paul is saying, as a pastor unto you, as an apostle, and I'm making this request. It's more than a request. It's like, I beseech you. I strongly desire you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is an apostle who saw the Lord, right, in a vision. This is an apostle that goes through a lot of things. This is an apostle with the thorn in the flesh who says, Romans, I beseech you, I so strongly desire by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, that we would be able to be molded, that we'd be able to become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Notice it's actually the mercy of the Lord for us to do this. This isn't like, I gotta be holy and acceptable in a living sacrifice, really. This is God's mercy is allowing you to. God's mercy will be the agent to let you. It is actually a gracious, merciful thing by the living God that we can be holy and acceptable, of course, but a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so I really do believe that in this season, and really entirely in a believer's life, that the Lord wants to renew us. He wants to renew the mind. He wants to renew the body. He wants to renew the soul, the spirit man. And it's really that part of, and a major, major part of the equation of being a believer, if you haven't realized this yet since being here, is Jesus fervently wants you by his mercy and grace to be transformed. Because if not, like, how about we just get saved and then die and go to heaven? It's like, it's, it's really remarkable, actually. Like, you get saved, and then some of us, you get saved, and you're going to be living on planet Earth for another 80 years, another 90 years after salvation. It's like, well, why not? Why can't I just go to heaven? Like, seriously, like, let's just, like, speed it along. Let me just get saved and go up to the pearly white gates. I mean, it's perfection. It's where we're all going. It's all peaceful. It's all great. It's all, like, why not? And it's like, no, I want you to be transformed on this side of the curtain, on this side of eternity. To get you ready for that and to be transformed so that I can have hundreds and thousands and maybe even millions representations of the true nature of Christ on earth as Jonathan was talking about. And as we saw this week with healing and manifestation and power and preaching of the gospel. And so what happens here is, you know, in the scriptures almost always, at least the big times, there is a transformation that always takes place in one location. That transformation is, in fact, on higher ground, on mountaintops. Maybe that's the angelic thing that you were feeling yesterday at the house, right? A little higher elevation. I don't know. 
But transformation almost always happens on a mountaintop. It could be, let's name some mountains. Help me out here. Mount Sinai. Jamie, give me another mountain. Zion. Everest. Happens, it's just not in the scriptures, but I guess it kind of is, right? In, 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 um, in the Psalms. But yeah, some of the big mountains here, right? We have Mount Zion or Zion. We have uh, Mount Moriah, which are actually the same things, but kind of not. It's complicated. Mount Sinai. Mount Hermon, uh, which is known as the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Some think it's Mount Tabor, but I'm a Hermon guy. But anyhow, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and then, of course, Mount Calvary. Now, there are other mountains, Mount Gilboa, things happen. There's, there's lots of mountains, but these particular mountains, we see this significant transformation that happens to a son or daughter of the Lord. And it beckons the question, why is it that the, that the Lord wants you to take you to a mountain to do this? It's weird. It's like, can't we just do it in the house? Can't we just do it somewhere? Now, he does do that, but a lot of times, to make a significant point, he says, I need to bring you to a mountain. And I believe that's because of the separation that occurs. Right? I believe it's the rawness that occurs. It allows you to really link in, in the biblical imagery, link in into the being alone with the Father. Right? But I think there's more to it than that as well. No one is like, unless you're weird like some of us, no one is like, let's just go up a mountain. Like, to go up a mountain, there needs to be a clear intended purpose. Like, you don't go up a mountain to go to the grocery store. Like, the mountain in biblical times is the place that you don't go here unless you have a significant intent and purpose to go. You're not building your houses up on mountains. You're not building the towns up on mountains. It does not make sense to do that. You build it closer to the water sources. You closer to places of transportation. But to climb a mountain is this. It is a setting your sights in a place like Flint that says my intended purpose is to meet with God, to in fact seek him and be in a higher place with him. That's what happens. And so let's take a look at some of these examples. I mean, the Mount Transfiguration, right? Uh, in, in biblical scholarship, there's kind of two schools of thought. Either it's Mount Tabor, which is a little bit more of a Catholic rendering, uh, and then also Mount Hermon in the north, which is uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. But the elements in the scriptures, because it doesn't tell us which mountain, it just says they went to a mountain and, it was trans and, and, and there was a transfiguration that happens. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Let's, uh, let's open up there and see the beginning of what's happening on these mountain places on these higher grounds. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, right? Moses, a representation of the law. Elijah, a representation of the prophets. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed, overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. 
But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This is my Son whom I am well pleased. There is a transfiguration of a revelation by the closest of disciples to see finally who Jesus really is. That's a major place of transformation since it's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Of course, we have uh, the, the story of Mount Sinai, which I was alluding to last week. And this is found, you know, particularly in Exodus 33, where, where God says to Moses as he's on the mountain, I need to put you in the cleft of the rock. I need to put you in a place, in the cleft, in the hanging, in the cave-ish kind of overhang, so, that my, so you don't see my presence. It's like, I am so holy, the Father is saying to Moses, that you need to be hidden away. He actually says, for any man who sees my face shall not live. So my hand will go and block my presence so you can't see him. Because you can't see the Father, right? That's what it says in the script. And I felt I was just so convicted by this. I was like, yes, that's it, man. That is, in fact, what's going on in the New Testament. You know, I remember as a kid, like, people were, like, asking to see the Lord, see the Lord in his holiness, see the Lord in his holiness. And I remember being a kid, like, but the scriptures say if we see him face to face, we die. Like, you know, you're a 10, 12-year-old kid, and you're, like, in the midst of the renewal of the 90s, you're like, what's really going on here, right? And I'm thinking about this, I remember the Sunday school sermon, or this thing. I thought the Lord said, yes, that's exactly what happened. Not only is it that's what exactly happens, that's what I want to happen. I want you to see me so you do die. When we come into the presence of the Lord, there is supposed to be death. See, a lot of times we're like, oh, underneath the new covenant, we can see God and live. No! Underneath the new covenant, because of the blood of Jesus, we're supposed to come into his presence and see him and die. Die to the flesh. I don't want to see him just to see him and get what I want. I want to see him so the flesh dies like Moses was like, I cannot see you. This is the beauty of a New Testament paradigm of seeing the face of the Lord and anyone who sees the face of the Lord shall in fact die. Yes, that's the beauty of it. I want to see him and behold his beauty so all things that are the flesh and all things that are the carnal will die away. And the only thing that is left is like the Mount Transfiguration where the presence and the shining of the Father was upon the Son. That is what the Lord wants to call us into. Anything else is just me, 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 get me saved into the, so I can get into the pearly white gate. Transfiguration or transformation is for you, but it's also really for the community around you, right? It's for your family. It's for the people that are hurting. It's for the people that need answers, that we come with a transformation and the shining of the brightness of your rising to the nations. That's the call in Israel in Isaiah 61. It's our call as well as New Testament believers. Can I get an amen on that? Come on, man. The winter is past. Springtime's coming. 70 degrees this week. So in the Older Testament, when you come in contact with the Father, you're supposed to physically die. In the New Testament understanding, when we come in contact with the Father, or let's be honest because of triunity, or the, the Son, the Holy Ghost, we're supposed to have a kind of spirit man that's exalted, ex 
exalted and the physical is supposed to die away. And this is the call that, that Paul, who's walking down the road and hears the Lord and sees a bright light as and in fact goes blind. This is what he experienced, and now this is what he's asking us in Romans 12. We want you, and the Lord wants you to be transformed by a renewal of the mind, to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the Lord. I want my mind to be renewed to the place where I say, I want to, in fact, be a living sacrifice. Now, there are children here, so I can't quite tell you what that looks like in the Middle East. It means not a spiritual death. It means a physical death sometimes. And I'm sitting here, Lord, we don't have that. But how can I position my mind? How can I position my spirit? How can I help position you guys to say, I actually want to be dead to the flesh and reside in the presence of the Father and be transformed? Because there's a lot of churches out there. And there's a lot of different gurus. And there's a lot of different answers that people are trying to give to make your life better. But this is what distinguishes us. One of the things. Uh, and I think there's, there's a problem when we start talking like this uh, because of renewal of the mind. I think that there is a quintessential problem in Christianity that hasn't always been there but is clearly there now, I believe. And this is one of these things is my humble opinion. In my humble opinion, uh, Christianity has become too emotional. I don't mean too charismatic. That's No, I'm, I'm, I believe in the gifts and we exercise the gifts. I mean that Christianity is so heart-based, so touchy-feely that we forget about the mind. Christianity wants to change your heart, but it wants to change your mind. And sometimes, you know, I'm only going to do what the Lord makes me feel. I'm not going to do this because I don't feel like it. I don't feel, I'm not motivated to do that. You know how many times I get up here and preach and I don't feel like doing it? You know how many times I'd rather just sleep in? You know how many times I'd rather just be with my kids? You know how many times I'd rather just take a Sunday off? You know how many times I just don't quite feel the message? But I renew the mind and say, no, I'm going to preach the word because he says to preach the word. And his word will be the one that transforms. I don't have to feel it. I get to feel it a lot of times. I'll be honest, this morning and this week, I was like, I'm not really feeling it. Too many of us come to Christ because our heart makes us feel like it. That's good, but it's only going to get you so far. Paul is saying, you've been there, but now I want a renewal of the mind. I want a renewal mind where your mind says, I, in fact, want to be a living sacrifice for Christ. Right? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the death and resurrection and the cross. Your heart is not going to want to do that. Your emotions are not going to be like, oh, let me feel the pain of suffering or anything like that. But, you know, look, he says there's a transformation, there's a renewal of the mind, and there really is a heart-mind connection. I mean, we all know this, right? Where the head goes, the... The heart or body follows, right? 2 Corinthians uh, 10, uh, verse 5, or rather in verse 4. For weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's just listen to the words in there, how much of intellect is there. 
an argument. Knowledge, thought, obedience. All of those things are really places of the mind. When we have spiritual warfare, you can't be like, I, everything's going to be broken off when I feel better in my heart. You, man, it, it's, it's, there's a balance, of course, but there needs to be a restoration of the understanding that there is a submission of the mind and you allow a renewal of your mind to take every high thought captive. If it's a thought, it's in your head. It's not in your heart. That is spiritual warfare. Taking thoughts and preconceived notions of what you believe to be in fact true and saying, no, that's a high thought and taking it down. We all can fill in the blank. Oh, there's a thousand things we can put in there. Now, there's another mountain, of course. That really shows this heart, mind, renewal of mind, and really, quite honest, a living sacrifice. Uh, and it's really uh, Mount Moriah. Okay? So Mount Moriah is essentially where the, uh, the temple has been built, okay? See there, the Dome of the Rock. I don't know if you can see, like, that stone kind of wall that's there. That, that's actually there to, like, create a plateau and hold the mountain in place, okay? Like it's like a backfill. It's like a retaining wall. Right there, the walls of Jerusalem over there are, like, the largest retaining walls on planet Earth, maybe. You know, it's, that's what it is, right? And so right there, right at the Dome of the Rock, was a place where the presence of the Lord was dwelling in the temple of God. And prior to that, it is the place where Abraham is going to offer up a, an, uh, a sacrifice to Isaac. Okay? And so in Genesis 22, we see this experiment, or rather, we see this coming out of the notion of what does making your life a living sacrifice really look like? And how does it bring forth a transformation? And how does it occur on a mountain? Now, I know we've all have read the story of what in Hebrew is Akidah Yitzhak, the binding of Isaac. The binding of Isaac. But I, I found this video, and uh, it, it's, you know, it, I, I, it just takes on another element. It's like you want to hold your kids a little tighter. And we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, but it's like, think about that for a moment. So, yeah, let's, um, let's, let's take a look at that video, Josh, if you may. God told Abraham to take his son up on the mountain and make a sacrifice of him. The son he loved. Isaac.
Wait here, my son. Verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let's think about this. Lord speaks to Abraham, and he obeys, and he lays his son on the altar, and they bring the, 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 the wood, and he lays his son on top of the wood. And we know, for those of us right, who know this story, it's, 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 man, there's so much going on, right? In Isaac is the promised seed of the future, right? It's the promised seed of what will to be. It's his favorite son. It's the, where the covenant is going to bear on him. And now the Lord is saying, you need to lay that down. Will you tell me what his heart is thinking at that point? It's my son. It's my son. That's my heart. It's my son. You've made me a promise. That is my heart. But what does his mind say? Lord, you have spoken. But it's my son, it's my son, it's my son. But his mind says, but you have spoken. You have told me to do this. Now in Christianity, we largely look at this story, I believe, at least in my circles and what I've seen, we largely look at this story through the lens of Abraham. In Judaism, they largely look at the story through the eyes of Isaac. It's called Yitzhak Akidah, the binding of Isaac. It's not the binding of Abraham. It's the binding of Isaac. Oh, I feel so bad for Abraham. Really? What about the son? He knows what's going on when his dad is putting him on the altar and he's laying on it. He knows. You think his heart was like, yeah, I want to do this? God has spoken. Um, I think what, what helps make sense of this is, and I don't do this much, and take it for what it is, but I, I believe there's something on it. In, in, in Judaism, in the, the interpretation of the story, when it says that, they, that Abraham bound Isaac, in, in the Talmud there's an explanation of what was really going on there. And what was really going on there is the, the, the belief that's been handed down traditionally for thousands of years is that Isaac actually goes to, the, to his father Abraham and says, please bind me so that I would not move. 
That's not in the, the text, but it's an interpretation. Please, Father, bind me so that I would not move from the altar. And I want to speak into that. Isaac, Abraham is willing to lay down his son's life, but Isaac is willing to lay down his own life on the altar. Not knowing that the ram would be provided, but the Lord did provide. And it's from this location where Isaac, not Abraham, but Isaac, lays his life on the altar, that that place opens up a portal, man. I mean, that is the place that is going to literally hold the presence of God in the first and second temples. It literally, the rock is there. Now, I'm not allowed in there because I'm not Muslim, because the Muslims have control over it right now. But there is a rock, and on the rock is the location where Abraham put Isaac, and if you take the interpretation, Isaac says, please bind me, Father. And it's in that location that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming back and is going to set up his earthly kingdom. All of that happens because someone says, I'm willing to be an actual living sacrifice. And so I beseech you, dear brethren, if that is the case with one man, what can happen when those who are the temple of God, if we take ourselves and say, let it be a living sacrifice? What could we open up in the spirit? We know exactly. It says in the scriptures, you're going to be priests, you already are priests, but you're going to be priests in the end times, and you're going to be right, judging nations. And even before that, you take a look at the book of Acts, which some people have some, like, discourse on. Like, you know, how come we don't see the book of Acts in our life and all this kind of stuff? Look, I understand that. So that's a very real conversation. The real conversation is this. They chose to make their lives a living sacrifice. And when the temples of God that are redeemed by the blood of Jesus and house the Holy Ghost, when we lay down our lives as living sacrifices, the only natural result is the power that was dispelled in the book of Acts. But we have to be a living sacrifice, like Isaac. Now let's open up to uh, 2 Peter here. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. This is, of course, Peter speaking. Am I in the right spot? Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, you know, these are some portions of Scripture we don't always pay attention to. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And Mary, if you, uh, you can come on down, please. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
That kind of sermon is not going to get people to tithe, all right? This, this is like, by the way, the Lord is returning and everything is going to melt like wax. So let that be a motivation for all holiness and godliness. That is what one of the apostles just said. Jesus is returning and everything is going to melt like wax. So because of that, here, a little motivation. How about we live godly and holy lives? Woo! Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, like all these things will happen, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent be diligent to be found by him in peace. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that, this is so beautiful, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written to you. In a sacrificial system, we'll return to this moment. In a sacrificial system, it's not enough just to say, I, it will be a sacrifice. It is not enough just to kill the ram and put it on the altar. It's not enough to take the pigeons and put it on the altar. It's not enough to take the lamb and put it on the altar. What does one need in sacrifice? That has to be something that's going to, Sting you in terms of, I would see Dave like it's cost me nothing, but really, for most sacrifices, you need fire. And I think this is where some of us in the church are getting some things wrong. We want to be living sacrifices, and we do nice things, and we put it on the altar, but the sacrifice and the well-smelling aroma cannot go up to the Lord because it has not been consumed by fire. And the consumption of fire in your daily sacrifice, in your sacrifice of, of life, is in fact Holy Ghost fire. You can put your life on the altar, but if there's no fire there, it's not going to get up to the Lord in the Spirit. Okay? So it's not enough to have a sacrifice. One needs fire, the presence of the Holy Spirit for it to consume. But let's take a look at this, like verse 8 here. Is earlier on it says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. This is funny. He actually says earlier in, in, in Second Peter, he's like, there are people that are calling us scoffers. They're calling us scoffers because the Lord has not returned yet, and he said he, he was going to return. And we've said that he's going to return. He's saying, like, don't, don't, don't listen to the scoffers. Remember, like, one day is as if it's a thousand unto the Lord. But verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, really, I was calling this uh, higher ground redux. And uh, what, what does this mean, redux? Redux means uh, to be brought back or revived. 
And so re-evaluating this notion of going up the hill of the Lord, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, you know, all this stuff that we preach and we pray and we, and, and we recite and we sing out is to really look at this in a redux format, look at it in a revived format. And I feel like there's something so unbelievably beautiful and powerful that is here. Second Peter 3.15, which we already read, says, and it's also stated earlier, that the Lord has long-suffering for you. I mean, let's unpack that for a moment. The Lord long-suffers. That's, that's more than patience. Long-suffering is like an element of pain and heavy burden. The Lord long-suffers for you. And so in the Older Testament, man had to climb a mountain to be revived. A man had to climb a mountain to be transformed. But because of the Father's long-suffering and desire for his salvation to be saved, he chose to come down, right? He chose to descend. And what was the motivation for that descent? It was a long-suffering of love. I desire for man and I to be in unity and unison again. It's a motivation of love. And so really it's this. Transformation must be motivated and is only occurred by an agent of change, which is love. It's the only thing. And so really closing up your 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Did you hear, like, I know it's a little bit of a different flavor and feel today, but do, do you see this, man? He says, I have, he has given us all things that pertain for our ability to be in godliness. So essentially what's being said here by Peter is there can be no excuse. By the Spirit of God, he has given us all things through his tender mercies in order to obtain full godliness and holiness through the Son. I've given you every tool. The problem here is the tool can't just be the heart. The tool has to be a renewing of the mind that says, I need to submit my Isaac, and if it's myself, I need to submit it, and I need to allow holy fire to burn it up. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And I've heard a lot of sermons of what those promises may be. But I haven't heard too many sermons outside of this house that says, actually, maybe the greatest of promises is to say, I'm going to live down a laid down life and sacrifice my life for Jesus so I can walk in full holiness and godliness and make an impact on the kingdom of God. That is the nature of God. He came not as a millionaire. He came as a carpenter. But he came in the nature and the godliness of God to see the people that he interacted with to be transformed. He himself became a living sacrifice and he's calling us to be one as well. And Peter says he has given us all the tools and all the ability to do it. So you know what? The excuse that you just have to sin. 
The excuse that you just have to go on with your life this way, it will not work, says Peter, because by the Spirit of God and by the blood of Jesus, He has given us all forms and ability not to be a millionaire, not to have the career that we want, but everything He's given to us by the Spirit of God to be a holy and acceptable presence of God on earth. But I'm telling you, how many of us view the story of Genesis 22 as Abraham, how nice he was to lay down his son. I'm telling you to refort, renew your mind. It says, actually, I've looked at the story so much through Abraham, but let me look at it as an obedient son. I am concerned, Father, that when I'm on the altar of God, my heart might light up and I am scared, so my heart is going to want to shoot off of the altar. But that's why Isaac in the Jewish tradition says, that's why you have to bind it. You have to bind the heart and the body to the altar so that you don't move. What is the binding of it? It's knowing the Lord, not just by your heart. It's knowing the Lord mentally, by your mind and your intellect and say, renew my mind and bind me to the altar. Because when things get rough, my emotions and heart want to get off. Wants to jump off the altar. But can there be something that binds me with leather? And I'm telling you, what it is, is it's a presence of the Holy Ghost to say, renew my mind. Let me look at this book not just as a thing, as a self-help guide and get me through things. Let me look at this book as an instructional manual of how can I be formed as a holy, living sacrifice of God. And Peter... Peter says but also for this very reason giving all diligence add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance perseverance godliness do you hear these are all elements of intellect it's all elements of the mind to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand once again, he's saying, if you adopt these virtues, what will you never be lacking in? Your knowledge of the nature of Christ. <laughs> it's not you're never going to lack. It's not like you're never going to lack, so you know you're not going to have bread or the food or the Corvette or the steak or whatever. He's saying, if you adopt these virtues, you will never lack the understanding of the nature of Christ, which is the thing that it's all about. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. If you lack virtue, if you lack the understanding of holiness and being an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice is purity. An acceptable sacrifice is that which is consumed by fire. If you lack these things, you're short-sighted. Listen to this language. This is not green aqua. This is Peter, the apostle of Christ. Not me, man. This is Peter. For if you lack these things, you're short-sighted 
even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. I think of many of us, we just need to like have, have a healthy dose of remembrance. Let us, let's, let not, or let's not forget that it was you that were supposed to be on that cross. Let's not forget that without him, I would be a horrible wreck, a wretch like me that's been saved by grace. We can't forget when we live in a place of abundance, when we live in a nation or culture of so much, we can never forget. We can never forget the penalty of sin. Not harp on it, but just, wow, I was saved so I can step into holiness. I can be saved so I can step into a place of being a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Oh my, it's like, really? Like, even more? Yes. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stop. You know, like, once saved, always saved, he's like, that may be true, but make sure you do everything you can to make your election sure. So that you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Close enough for serious here. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in this present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. This is Peter as an old man. He says, I'm taking this tent off and I'm going to see Jesus soon. He knows his time is up. He knows the race is underway and he's going to be going to heaven. And he says, but before that, I must remind you. I need to remind you. I, as a pastor of this flock, I need to remind you. I need to remind you, as Peter says, diligently. That every day, we need to pick up our cross. Every day, we need to say, Holy Ghost, show me how it is to be a living sacrifice. Let me take on the virtues of the Lord and be cleansed. The way to do this is to remember. Let me stand to our feet. I'm telling you, love is the greatest of motivators. We need to come to a place where we dare not forget. Dare not forget the old sin nature. But that we've been set free. And because of that, He has purchased us. We are now, yes, Slaves of Christ are now purchased as a sacrifice by a sacrifice. And it's not heavy. That's the thing, man. If you think that living a life that is a living sacrifice and honorable and pleasing unto the Lord is heavy, it's because you haven't quite completely understood what that looks like. 
You haven't quite understood the beauty of it. You haven't quite understood the love of Jesus. Lord, I ask, Lord, let us be a people that remember. Let us be a people that remember the price. Lord, let us be a people that remember the call to seek godliness and holiness. But Father, I pray for those of us, including myself, who are ruled by emotion, that like Isaac, we would say, bind me. Bind me to an altar, dare I move. Bind me to the altar so I do not move from it. Holy fire, consume us. Consume us all that is not you. Let it burn away. I've heard, I've heard that there's some new renditions of the song Amazing Grace that actually get rid of the word wretch like me. No, that's the power of the cross. I was a wretch, but now I'm pure and clean in his eyes.
let us not forget even when many around us in the world and culture may forget speaking 2,000 years ago Peter the apostle the fisherman says dare let us not forget that we have in fact been cleansed from sin but not just cleansed from sin to stop there but cleansed from sin to begin anew cleansed from sin to now step into a renewal of the mind as Paul says a renewal a restoration that we can be pure and holy and a pleasing sacrifice a living sacrifice unto our God because of Jesus by Jesus and in Jesus name Amen